Good morning and welcome to Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. There are a number of people who are gathered together in the gymnasium here this morning. We welcome you, but we also welcome those who are listening and joining in on KFUO radio and KFUO on the internet. Today we continue our study of the gospel according to St. Luke. I think it's always important as we go into the study of God's word that we begin with a word of prayer. Would you join me? Lord God, we ask you to bless your word wherever it is preached, wherever it's taught. Make it a word of power and peace to convert those who have not yet become your own and to strengthen and confirm those who by the Holy Spirit have already come to saving faith. We ask your blessing upon our study today. We ask that your word may pass from our ears to our hearts, from our hearts to our lips, from our lips to our lives, that as you've promised, your word would not return to you empty, but it would accomplish the things for which you send it. We pray these things, we pray all things, in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus. Amen. Today we take up uh, chapter 9 of the Gospel of St. Luke. You need to know that this is really a pivotal portion of Luke's Gospel. A, a big change will take place, and you'll see it as we go on. It becomes obvious, or it should be obvious, of who this Jesus is. Remember the pattern that we experienced thus far in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is always preaching. In chapter 8, we know he told the parable of the sower, and then he gave the expl explanation. And immediately after the teaching, or the preaching, there comes a number of miracles. A number of miracles that back up what Jesus had just said. Particularly miracles of healing. And so in chapter 8, we see, first of all, the stilling of the storm. And then driving the demons out of the Gerizim demoniac. And then there's the woman with the issue of blood that touched his robe. And the culmination, the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. And as this pattern continues, we, we look at the way in which people respond to what they're hearing and what they're seeing. And there's always fear. There is great fear. There is trembling because they still don't know who Jesus is. Jesus' answer to this fear is always the same. Don't fear, only believe. Your faith has made you well. He keeps bringing people back to the importance of their faith in him. But the question that is always being asked, first of all by the disciples, then by many others, is who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? Remember after the stilling of the storm on the lake, in verse 25, it's the disciples who have been with Jesus for some time who are still asking, who is this? Now, the demons knew when the Gerizim demoniac confronted Jesus, the demon cried out, Jesus, you are the son of the most high God. We know who you are. Don't send us into the abyss. We've heard how the Gentiles seemed to understand as the word was proclaimed in, in those regions. But what about the Jews? They still would not believe. And what about his family who had, who had come to take him away because they thought that he had gone crazy. And what about the disciples who still had been following him all this time and are asking the question? It's nobody yet really seems to get it. It's, it's a mystery. And so as Luke tells the story, there's this building anticipation. When is Jesus going to make himself truly known as to who he is? Chapter 9, the transition, gives the answer. Not only identifying who Jesus is, but what it means to those of us who will follow Jesus. 
And so as we, we get into this today, I, have you ever been in a group of people and someone tells a joke and everybody laughs except you because you didn't get the joke? It should have been obvious. It was obvious to everybody else, but you didn't get it. And so you felt awkward and uncomfortable, and you began to wonder what was wrong with you or what was wrong with them. We got the same kind of situation going on here. It should have been obvious. After all of this teaching, all of, this, all of these miracles, it should have been obvious to everyone who Jesus is. But the disciples still don't understand. And yet, Jesus sends them out. And that's where Luke chapter 9 begins, verses 1 through 6. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now notice at the beginning of this story, they are called the Twelve. And that's the way Jesus had referred to them from the very beginning when he called them back in chapter 6, the Twelve. And so he's identifying the specific ones that we know as his disciples. It was now time for them to do what he had called them to do to go out into the world and tell the world the good news about Jesus. This was part of their training for ministry, sort of like a vicarage. He sent them out to do some work and he brought them back again and then he'd explain to them what would happen. Later in the next chapter he sends out 72 and brings them back. He's, it's part of the training that Jesus has in store for them. Notice he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He gave them his power. He'd been demonstrating his power all along. Now he takes what is his and he gives it to them. And then he says, go out and proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. And that's exactly the same thing that Jesus had been doing all along. His instructions included, take nothing with you don't need any provisions as long as Jesus was on this earth he was going to make sure that his disciples were well taken care of so you're on this journey but you don't need to take anything for the trip everything is going to be provided for you go to the houses and this would become a pattern for their ministry as well it it wasn't just going to towns and standing in the streets and proclaiming the gospel but they were to go to specific houses and they were to stay in that houses. They weren't supposed to be shopping around for the best offer. This was, you go there, you stay there, you do your work until you're done. And then you move on. And he warned them from the beginning, there's going to be some opposition. There's going to be people who reject you. We already heard that there were people who rejecting rejecting him. Why wouldn't the disciples expect that kind of rejection as well? And when they do reject you, Jesus said, you just knock the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. You don't leave any remnants of that town in, on, on your feet. You just move on because the mission is urgent. We've got to get the word out. And if there are people who are going to reject it, they are going to reject it. Remember, he had told the parable of the sower. Right? And this is building on that parable of the sower. The, the question was, why do some people believe it and produce fruit? And why are there other people who reject the gospel? Why are there people who believe for some time and then drift away? Jesus had already explained it. There's going to be a rejection. Some people will listen and some people won't. And you just keep moving because the mission is critical. And so they went. And they preached. 
and they healed everywhere. You get the impression, don't you, that, well, it's not said here, this is a pretty successful mission trip. But you have to wonder, don't you, what, what were they preaching about Jesus at this point? They, they were still asking the question, who is this Jesus? And yet, they're out there representing Jesus? All they could talk about is what they'd seen, what they'd personally heard. That's what it means to be a witness, isn't it? We don't always have to have all the right answers. We just have to tell about what Jesus has done for us. And nobody can argue with what Jesus has done for us. We've seen it, we've heard it, we believe it, we live it. And so that's what I believe they were doing. Simply telling what they had seen, what they had heard from Jesus himself. Now meanwhile, while they're out doing all of this, the world's starting to take note, including the highest ranking positions in the kingdom. And so we read in, in verses 7 through 9, word had reached King Herod. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, by others one of the prophets had risen. Jesus said, um, Herod said, John I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Herod was a tetrarch. You need to, this is kind of a cut, because his dad was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the guy who did all the building, who killed the babies, and Herod the Great was a ruthless kind of man who ruled over a fairly large kingdom. But Herod the tetrarch, Tetrarch means he ruled over one-fourth. He was only one-fourth the man that his father was, but he still comes off as the villain in the gospel according to St. Luke. Because we've already heard in chapter 3 that he was the one who arrested and then beheaded John the Baptist. And you remember the story. John was preaching against Herod, talking about his adultery, how he had married his brother's uh, wife, so John was, was arrested, and then there was the dancing scene with Herodias, and John was beheaded. And so Herod knew this, this couldn't be John the Baptist. He, he beheaded him. But people were saying he'd come back to life. Herod apparently had the same kind of animosity toward Jesus. We read in chapter 13 how he was already seeking to kill Jesus. Now the text just said he sought to see him, but you wonder what he sought to see. He'd heard about the miracles, he'd heard about the movement, but what was it that he was seeking to see in Jesus? And just a little heads up, when he finally does get to meet Jesus, Remember, it was during the trial. Pilate wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He sent him on to, to uh, Herod because Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. It was Herod's jurisdiction. Jesus wouldn't perform the miracles that Herod wanted to see. And so, while he wanted to see Jesus, he wanted to mock him. And he's the one who put on the purple robe and had the soldiers make fun of Jesus being a king. Well, Herod had heard the rumors. And it's interesting, the rumors that Herod had heard. Keep this in the back of your mind. Some said it was John the Baptist. Some said Elijah. Some said one of the prophets of old. That's what the people were thinking in those days. That was the rumors that were going around about Jesus. But what did that mean? People were recognizing that there was something prophetic about the message that was being proclaimed. There had been 400 years of silence from God since the last of the Old Testament prophets. There was no word from God, and now all of a sudden, there's this John the Baptist who was preaching God's word and condemning kings and proclaiming a new kingdom. And then there was this Jesus 
who was following in the footsteps and doing the same kinds of things that John had done and even greater things than John, something spiritual was going on in the world and they didn't know what to make of this. And so, like everybody else, Herod is asking, who is this? And so the anticipation continues to build. He wanted to see Jesus for himself. So we don't know how long the disciples are out. Apparently it was some time. The world seems to be talking about him. High places are seeking to, uh, to see him. And now the disciples come back. Verses 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told him what they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for we're here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For, where, for, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And um, he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave to the disciples to set before the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And, there, and what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Notice he sent out twelve. And notice how they're referred to now. On their return, the apostles. And this is the first time that they're identified as apostles. An apostle is literally one who sent. These were the original missionaries. These were the ones who were the ambassadors sent to represent Jesus in all of these places where they traveled everywhere. So for the first time, they're identified as apostles, the sent ones. They came back, and I suspect they were thrilled. They told Jesus everything that had been going on while they were out preaching and healing. They had to have told the story of many, many who, who heard the word, many, many who were healed, many, many who rejected as well. And you have to wonder what the disciples must have been thinking at that point. I, I, I can't help thinking that maybe they were at a point where they're saying, we got it, we, we, we've taken care of this, Jesus, we got it all down, we're successful, this is going to happen, the kingdom's going to come, just like you said. Maybe they were getting a big head about what they'd been able to accomplish on this first mission trip. And so immediately Jesus takes them away to a desolate place. They went to a town called Bethsaida. It's a little town north of the Sea of Galilee, not really on the sea these days, but some distance away. And it's interesting because Bethsaida is the, the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Philip. So he took them back home again, where they would have been recognized by other people. Um, but it's still identified as, as a desolate place so away from the crowds. Bethsaida is also one of the towns that, that later on Jesus would condemn because of their unbelief. Remember, um, if the miracles that had been done in Bethsaida had been, or the, if the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah would have recognized the things that are going on in your town, they, they would have believed, but you're so hard-hearted, you don't get it. The crowds heard that Jesus had gathered with his disciples there, and so they show up. 
for the same kind of ministry, preaching the gospel and healing the diseases. And it must have been a long day. Now, I, I don't know that I really want to make the comparison, but, but you think of Woodstock. Remember that mass of people on the side of a hill who were all excited about something going on? They say there was half a million at Woodstock. I, don't, I wasn't there. Um, but but 5,000 people. This is a big crowd. And you think about the acoustics. And, and there, there are places in Israel where you go and you see the hillside and you say, yeah, Jesus could have been in a place like this. And you see how 5,000 people could have been gathering around to hear Jesus. Um, all day long, he preached and healed. And night was coming on and... The disciples, compassionate men, of course, they, they saw that if this went on much longer, somebody was going to have to provide a meal, and they didn't have the wherewithal to do it. So they went to Jesus. And they said, Lord, send the crowd away. Just... It's over, it's done with, it's been a long day. Just send them all home because they're going to need something to eat and we don't have the resources here to provide this. Besides that, this is a desolate place. There are neighboring towns, but there's nothing close by that we could go and buy enough bread for 5,000 men. Remember... 5,000 men. It's Matthew who talks about also being women and children there, but Luke only identifies 5,000 men. You have to start wondering, what's, what's going on? Why the mention of a desolate place? Why the mention of just 5,000 men not talking about children, wives? What's going on? Luke, I think, is making a comparison and drawing our attention to what took place in the Exodus. Remember how they were out in the wilderness and they ran out of food. And God provided manna and quail every day. And when you read the book of Exodus, it all, and, and, I'm sorry, when you read Numbers chapter 1 and 2, it only identifies men. Of course, there were women and children involved in the Exodus. I think Luke is deliberately trying to say to us, a new Exodus is happening here, folks. Pay attention to this. Because even as God fed people and provided, as we hear in the sermon today, as God provided for people long ago, so God is here today providing for his people. So they came to Jesus, and they're lacking the resources. They go out into the crowd, and they find a little boy with five loaves and two little fish, a little boy's lunch, according to the Gospel of John. What in the world were they thinking when they went to Jesus and said, uh, here, we got five loaves and two fish? What did they really expect Jesus to do at that point? Were they poking fun? Were they, were they serious? But they brought to Jesus the little bit that they had. Bread, the basic necessity of life. Bread like the manna that God provided in the wilderness. Fish, not quail, but fish. And Maybe Luke is trying to make a, a, another point here. In the New Testament, they... The earliest symbol for Jesus is a simple fish. The Greek word for fish is ichthys. Heard of theology, the study of fish? Okay. Ichthys was the word that they used, and the initials in this Greek word ichthys could be translated as, as a, 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 whatever you call it, um, Jesus Christ. God's Son, our Savior. And the, the church used this early on, before they were making crosses on the ground, identifying themselves as Christians. 
They were using this simple fish to say, Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior, we're Christian people. And so it was bread and fish that Jesus used to provide this meal. He told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups of 50. Why would that be significant? Well, remember the advice that Jethro gave to Moses out in the wilderness? Moses was having trouble administering what was going on among the people. And Jethro, his father-in-law, said, group them into smaller groups, thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, and that way you'll be able to administer what's going on. Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50. And so they all sat down on the grass. And he took the bread, and he blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. Do those words sound familiar? That night in the upper room, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he revealed himself to them and his body and blood. On the road to Emmaus, remember there were two disciples traveling back and, and they didn't understand what was going on. Jesus opened the scriptures to them and explained it to them as they traveled. That night they arrived at Emmaus and the, these two disciples invited Jesus into their home. And it was during the meal that Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and their eyes were opened and they saw Jesus. There are these meals throughout the Gospel of Luke in which the very same actions are taking place and every time Jesus is revealing himself to his people. I believe that's what Jesus is doing here. He's revealing himself to the people in the breaking of bread. He blessed it, broke it, gave it to the disciples. And they said it before the people. <laughs> can can you, you imagine, they bring five loaves of bread and two fish. There's 12 of them. Jesus began to break apart the bread and, put, and the fish and put it into their hands. And they turn around and see this hillside full of 5,000 men plus women and children. And what are we supposed to do with this little bit? But they went out onto the hillside and began to give bread. And each time they reached into their hand, there was more. And they reached again, and there was more. I suspect that they were giggling to themselves because where is all of this bread coming from? Every time there's more and more and more and more. Jesus is providing abundantly, but it's coming out of their hands. Who's doing this miracle? Was it the disciples? He'd given them power and authority. Was it Jesus? Yes, the answer. Of course, Jesus was doing it through them. Miracles were happening. And everyone ate, and everyone was satisfied. Remember back in Exodus, when the manna lay on the ground? Every day, people had to go out and pick it up. Only what they could eat that day. Only what would satisfy them. If they took too much, it all rotted. If they didn't seem to pick up enough, there was more. On the weekends when there was a Sabbath day, somehow it was two days worth, not just one. God kept providing bread until everyone was satisfied. And now Jesus is doing the same thing. Everyone's satisfied. And so Jesus sent them out to pick up the leftovers, and now there's 12 baskets full of leftovers, one for each one of the disciples. John tells us the reaction of the crowd. They're ready to take Jesus by force and make him a king because they don't understand what's going on. They wanted a bread king. They thought the kingdom of God was an earthly kingdom, but not so. 
Why 12 baskets full? Why leftovers for the disciples? Could it be that, that this great miracle wasn't so much about the 5,000 as it was about the 12? They were still asking, who is Jesus? They've been out on this missionary journey. They've been telling the story. But now, for the first time, Jesus is revealing himself to them as the great I Am, the Old Testament one who had provided for his people abundantly throughout the wilderness. Maybe, maybe the disciples should have understood at this point who Jesus is. Because here comes the great shift. Who is Jesus? Well, some were saying he was John the Baptist. Some were saying he's Elijah, one of the others. But obviously he's greater than the one. He's th than all of those. He, he is the one. He is the great I Am. This meal, this feast that he had just provided is really a foretaste of a feast which is to come when the kingdom is established. Who is Jesus? Anybody got a clue yet? The disciples understand who it is. Yes and no. Because look what happens. All four of the, the Gospels tell this story of the feeding of the 5,000. And one of the few miracles that is included in all of them. But I believe St. Luke puts it right here for a purpose to say to the disciples, it's obvious now, isn't it? You know who Jesus is. What follows is this great confession. Look at verses 18 through 20. Now it happened, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. In the, in the Greek language, verse 12 begins with a little expression, kai ekenato. It, it, it's a word that often appears in the Gospel of Luke, and it, it's translated here, now it happened. In the old King James Version, it was always, behold! It's like shouting out, pay attention, because something big is about to happen. Something even bigger than the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, we'll hear this word again and again in a, a few more verses. Who do the people say that I am? And the disciples repeated the very same words that the villain of the story had pronounced. The rumor's going on, he's John the Baptist, he's Elijah, he's one of the other Old Testament prophets. That's what everybody was saying about Jesus. Nobody understood yet who it was. But the way this is translated again isn't completely accurate. The answer that Peter gives, or the question that Jesus asks is, you. You, who do you say? Now, it doesn't matter what other people are saying. Who do you say that I am? There's the emphasis. After nearly three years of traveling with Jesus, after hearing all of his teaching, after watching all of these miracles, having themselves been involved in miracles of healing, having power and authority, watching the feeding of the 5,000, who do you say that I am? And it Peter answers for all of them, you're the Christ of God. You are the promised Messiah. Peter is the first human being to identify Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of old. You have to wonder, why didn't somebody else catch on earlier? That the angels at his birth announced good news to the shepherds. 
Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. From the very beginning, the angels told us who Jesus is. The demons understood. At the, at the Gerizim demoniac, they identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Family, friends, disciples still didn't get it. But now Peter, for the first time, the first human being, confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. You got to wonder, did he get it? Here, here's the answer that Jesus had been waiting for. Here's the confession that Luke has been building up to. Who is Jesus? The answer is obvious now. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But did Peter really understand what that meant? And as we'll see it going on, no, he still didn't get it. The question and the way it's asked in the Gospel of Luke forces every one of us to answer the question as well. But you, you, who do you say Jesus is? And that's a question that, that we get asked every day. It's a question that's out there in the world around us that, that we're hearing constantly, maybe in not so many words, but, but the world is looking to us who do you say this Jesus is? Who is it that you go to worship every Sunday morning? Who is it that you contribute generously to? Who is it that you go out into the world and do good works on behalf of? Who is this Jesus that you Christians say you worship? And the simple answer is, he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do we make that confession not just with our lips, but do we really make that confession with our lives? Do we really understand what it means to say those words? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yesterday was kind of a, an important day for Lutherans. <laughs> Theologians would understand that yesterday was the anniversary of the Augsburg Confession. In 1530, the German princes were called before the Holy Roman Emperor. And they were asked, basically, who do you say Jesus is? What is the means of salvation? And they got down on their hands and knees before the emperor, and they confessed their faith, that they would rather die than, than deny this Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is, and what does it mean to you? The answer is clear. It's obvious. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. But where do we go with that? Let's pause for a second. Any, any questions thus far? This is kind of what, what St. Luke has been building up to, this confession. Raymond? Bethsaida is very near to Caesarea Philippi, and the other Gospels identify Caesarea Philippi as the place where it happened. And so probably not far and clearly not very long, because Luke is trying to make the connection with this Ageneto thing, that there's a connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and the confession that Peter makes. It's on the basis of what he'd just seen that Peter confesses. Yes. Going back to verse 5, you know, many where he tells the disciples to shake the dust off their feet. Mm -hmm. Many times we're witnessing to people when they just aren't listening. Mm -hmm. Is this telling us to just give up finally too? Okay, the question is, when, when we're told to shake the dust off our feet, does that mean we give up on people at some point? And the answer is no, we don't. 
Right. But I think what he's saying is this is urgent. You've got to get out there. You've got to keep going. Um, I, I don't think he ever gives up on anyone. There is always the opportunity to preach the gospel. But the point is the urgency. Get it done. Be out there. Go. And, and, but on the other hand, there is a, there is that part, there's, a, there's a proclamation of the law in saying that. You're not going to believe? Fine. We're done. We're moving on. Hear the word of the Lord? You don't want to listen to it? It's, it's up to you now. Other questions? Yes? Right. Right. Yep. And here's a, a part of what I was going to get to. Judas was one of the twelve sent out. Judas was given power. Jesus was Judas was given authority. Jesus preached Jesus and and healed with the power of Jesus. Judas was always there. I believe what happened to Judas is what happens to many, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. Is a misunderstanding of what the kingdom is all about. I think Judas was caught up in what we call the theology of glory. That this kingdom that Jesus was going to to build was to take this power and use it to establish an earthly kingdom where all needs would be taken care of. There would be healing for everybody, a a great retirement program. It was social socialism at its best that Jesus was going to establish in his kingdom as he was the head and as as we'll see in just a minute that isn't what Jesus was talking about at all the kingdom that Jesus came to establish was the kingdom of God a kingdom which included suffering in this world When when Jesus sent out the twelve, Pastor Prang says it was kind of like each one reach one. As they went into town, you get the impression, were they on their own or later on the strategy was two by two? But we don't know here. They just went out. Um, that's, That's tough when you're on your own out in the world trying to witness to the Lord Jesus and someone comes to you with... Uh, asking the question but then reject what you have to say about Jesus it's it's a tough ministry any other thoughts now watch what happens Peter's just made this confession. Here's the climax of the gospel up to this point. This is what Luke has been building for. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of of God. He's the one who, like Moses, fed people and healed the sick and raised the dead. And this is who Jesus is. This is what Luke wanted everybody to know. So do they understand what that means? We turn to verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. How could they keep that a secret? Feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. How, How could the disciples keep that a secret? But he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the first of three times that Jesus predicted his death and it comes right after the confession. And here's why Peter didn't get it. Here's why Judas didn't get it because they didn't want to talk about suffering. They didn't want to talk about dying. They thought the kingdom that Jesus was going to establish was something completely different. So Jesus says, as the Son of Man must suffer many things. There are critics who would say, Jesus never called himself the Son of God. 
He called himself the Son of Man. But if you go back to the book of Daniel, the seventh chapter, Daniel had a vision of one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great dominion. One of the, the, the ideas about the coming Messiah was that he would come as the Son of Man. And so the expectations were this one coming down in the clouds, establishing this earthly kingdom. And so Jesus called himself Son of Man, but then he said, the Son of Man must be rejected. He must suffer many things. He must be killed and on the third day be raised again. He commanded them to keep silent about this until he'd completed all his work because they didn't understand why this must happen. There's, again, a little Greek word. The Greek word is day, and it, it's, it's translated must. And from this point on in the Gospel of Luke, that little word day, must, appears again and again and again. Jesus must be rejected, and it happens. Jesus must be killed, and it happens. Jesus must rise from the dead, and it happens. Why must it all happen? Because this was God's plan. It wasn't about this earthly kingdom. It was God's plan, and it included suffering and dying before resurrection life and glory. The Jewish authorities couldn't get this. The disciples were struggling to understand this. How could there be suffering in the kingdom that Jesus was to establish? Have you, you heard about the theology of glory? The, the theology of glory says, basically, Jesus came to establish his kingdom, and if you believe in Jesus strong enough, there won't be any suffering in your life. There won't be any sorrow. There won't be any pain. If you believe, Jesus will take care of all those things. No pain, no suffering, no cross, just glory. And there are lots and lots of denominations and lots and lots of preachers out there who preach this theology of glory. But Jesus says God's plan must take place, and God's plan always includes suffering now and glory sometimes later. That's why many people rejected Jesus, Judas and others. And that's why people today still reject Jesus. They don't want to talk about suffering or pain. So what does it mean now for all of us to make this confession, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Look at verses 23 to 27. And he said to all, not just the twelve now, but to all who were still around him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling all, not just all in the crowd that day, I believe he's telling all who would ever follow Jesus. So he's telling you and me as well. There are two alternatives on, on how we live our lives. One is according to the world, and one is according to his kingdom. To follow Jesus, to live the life that he has called us to, is first of all to deny yourself. Notice he didn't say, deny yourself caffeine during Lent. 
Deny yourself chocolate from time to time. Deny yourself alcohol. Deny yourself some things. Jesus didn't say deny yourself stuff. Jesus said deny yourself. Literally say no to yourself. And that takes us into a whole different ballpark than just giving up a few things. This is saying no to all of our selfish desires. All of the things that we think, all of the things that we want, all of the things that we talk about, say no to yourself. And take up your cross daily. Notice in the Gospel of Luke, there's no mention of a cross until right here. And Jesus isn't talking about his cross at this point. He's talking about their cross. Now their cross, in their way of thinking, would have been the most, most horrendous, the most scandalous, the most awful thing that could possibly happen. And he's saying to them, you take up your cross because you've already been found guilty. You've been sentenced to die. From our understanding, that means you've all been baptized. You've already died with Christ. So you can be crucified. It, it's not a horrible thing. Take up your cross. Take it up every, every day. Remember that you are a baptized Christian. You have died with Christ each and every day. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And then he goes on to talk about what that's going to look like. Those who want to save their lives will lose them. If you want to save your life in this world, that is, if you want to be part of this connection, you're going to lose your life in the kingdom. Anyone who seeks to save himself will, will be lost. Anyone who's ashamed of Jesus will be lost. Anyone who seeks temporal gain and will, seek, will have eternal loss. How, again, going back to this theology of glory, how, how can people go there and think that in the lives of the Christian there won't be any suffering, there won't be any rejection, there won't be any pain, there won't be any sorrow? Jesus tells us from the very beginning, as Peter made this bold confession, here's what, it, here's what we confess about Jesus, and now he's saying, here's what it means, and what it means is a cross, and humiliation, and suffering, and pain all through your life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Then he makes this bold prediction. There are some standing here who will see the kingdom of God. Now, some interpreters would say that they misunderstood and thought the kingdom of God was going to be established during their, their life here, that great things were going to happen. And some of the people were maybe thinking about an eternal kingdom, and they were already thinking about Jesus coming back a second time. But what does Jesus mean when he says, there are some standing here who are going to see the kingdom? He ushered it in when he died on the cross. Right? And there were some standing there in the crowd that day, 12, the women, many others, who would see firsthand what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. A cross the humiliation, the pain, suffering, that's going to be part of your life as well. We don't have time to go to the next story, but he gets it right. Because after telling us about all this suffering and all this pain, the very next account is transfiguration and glory. It's going to happen, but the order has got to be suffering first. And then comes the glory. That's what it means to confess Jesus as Christ, the Son of the living God. It means taking up your cross and following him. We'll let the pastors get into the transfiguration next week and the glory, but 
Let's close with a word of prayer. Again, we thank you, Heavenly Father, through your dear Son, Jesus, for the blessings of your word, for speaking it so clearly today. We know who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is your Son from all eternity, the one who came to carry out your eternal plan, the one who knew that he must suffer many things and be rejected and die on a cross and rise again for our sake, all according to your will. And so we pray that as we've heard his call, we might follow Jesus, that we might deny ourselves and take up our cross every day and follow him through pain and sorrow and all the difficulties of this life. We pray, gracious God, guide and direct us in the ways that we must go, the way through the cross that leads to resurrection and life forevermore. Bless us throughout this week as we make a bold confession to the world around us, for we know who Jesus is. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Go in peace.